Good morning. It's, um, it's been fun to uh, greet many of you and uh, renew our acquaintance. A couple years have passed since I, I guess I was with you in 2014, which is certainly long enough for me to forget and hopefully for you as well. And maybe, if not forgive some of what happened in 2014. Um, I was reminded on my arrival here that I've uh, got to always watch your back around Troy and John. They put me up in this really nice cabin up the hill, um, and I went to, went to take a shower after a long flight, and um, there was no hot water. So I went, found eventually the basement and uh, noticed that the hot water heater was off, and I, I'm sure it was either Troy's or John's fingerprints on the dial that had, had turned it off, so... Anyway, there was hot water this morning, for which I am thankful. Um, yeah, it's really a privilege to be here with all of you, um, especially with those of you who preach the word uh, week in, week out, who teach, admonish, model, uh, who shepherd. Um, I was reminded last night um, by Anne uh, just how much I need to pray for my flock, such as they are my students. Um, but I realized that as a teacher, um, I can get away often with saying, well, here are two or three views, and these are the reasons why people hold view A, B, C. Uh, and I can often leave it at that. Um, but Paul is involved in shaping the moral life and action of a community just as you are. And so um, my goal in our time together this week is to interact together with you around one of Paul's letters to explore how he does pastoral ministry, how he seeks to bring together words and actions, how he's not content simply to offer options for consideration, but um, uses all of the uh, many gifts that he has been given, all of his skill and energy to help produce a community whose life embodies the message. And I hope we'll find it encouraging, enlightening, uh, sometimes Paul is frustrating, and that's good as well. Um, my plan is to allow some time for question and answer at the end of each of these sessions. Um, so um, no question is off limits. Um, I may not be able to answer a lot of your questions, but I hope we'll be able to wrestle with Paul and um, wrestle with parts of his pastoral practice that seem uh, difficult as well as those that seem exemplary. Anne reminded us last night that um, the particularities of our flocks are crucial to knowing how God is working among them and how God wants to use us to continue to work among them. And so um, part of what I want to do in this first session is help you understand some of the particularities of the church to which Paul writes as far as we can reconstruct it. That's an initial move that in some, in some ways will, will distance us from the church in Thessalonica. Distance us, though, I hope in a way that will allow what Paul has to say to them to be illuminating to our own situation. Partly through its strangeness, it may be able to throw new light on our particularities. Um, Robert Jensen, systematic theologian, uh, theologian in residence at the Center of Theological Inquiry in Princeton, um, someone from whom I've learned a great deal, has reminded us that it is um, a, a deep misunderstanding of the character of the church to think that in studying a letter like 1 Thessalonians, we are reading someone else's mail. 
we confess weekly that there is one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And so the community to which 1 Thessalonians was originally written is the community to which we, modern-day contemporary believers in Jesus Christ, ourselves belong. So the distance that separates us is one of time, of, of culture, of language, um, but that fundamental unity that is found in our participation in the life of the triune God um, means that this is a letter addressed to us as well. So again, there'll be some distance, but only for the purpose of hearing, hopefully more sharply, what is it that God has to say to us in our particular situations today? Um, this slide isn't going to change. I didn't think I could trust myself with PowerPoint. Um, but I did want to show you where Thessalonica is as a way of beginning to orient us to this letter. Um, so I don't have a pointer, and I'm not quite tall enough, but if you see the, the three fingers there sticking out, Thessalonica is in the gulf that comes up on the left side of that. So there's a yellow dot. That one is the one that Thessaloniki, modern-day Thessaloniki goes with. Um, this is a modern-day political map, so you can see where we are. Um, in the first century, this Thessalonica was part of the Roman province of Macedonia. And Macedonia itself, um, being a sort of Greek um, region, not uh, part of the classical Greek uh, world of Athens, but a kind of, uh, well, for some of those living in Athens, they were sort of the, the hicks living up in the, in the uh, boondocks. But Macedonia uh, emerged on the map in a huge way with King Philip of Macedon who um, brought unity to the warring Greek cities, the cities exhausted by um, decades, nearly, well, a century of war between Athens and Sparta. He um, brought freedom to these cities by putting them all under his control. And um, Philip's son, Alexander, built on his father's consolidation of power to launch a lightning strike across the then known world all the way to um, India conquered the Persian Empire, long nemesis of Greece, um, and brought uh, a kind of overlay of Greek language and culture. Oh, look at this. Thank you. It's good. Thank you. This reminds me of my uh, junior high algebra teacher who <laughs> paced the floor with his meter stick, and if you weren't paying attention, you just got that on your desk. Uh, so there's Thessalonica. Um, so, founded by one of the successors of Alexander the Great, he flamed out pretty quickly. He died uh, in, in, uh, of illness in Babylon. His empire was divided among his generals, and um, some of the generals got this area of Macedonia and Greece. So, Cassander founds Thessalonica in about 315, and he founded it at a crucial, on a crucial harbor. This is one of the very best harbors in the entire Aegean Sea. And um, Thessalonica by the time of Paul, is on the major east-west trade route um, built up by the Romans into a very efficient and safe mode of travel known as the Ignatian Way. And it would take you from the seacoast where you could catch a ship for uh, Brundisium and then take the Appian Way up to Rome, took you all the way to the Black Sea, to uh, Byzantium, modern-day Istanbul, to uh, northern Anatolia. And um, it's this route that Paul follows as he comes into Europe um, 
The narrative in Acts has Paul taking a ship from Troas uh, all the way to the port city, Neapolis, modern-day Kavala, ministering in Philippi, and then coming down the Ignatian Way, and Acts mentions Amphipolis and Apollonia, and working in Thessalonica. Um, from Thessalonica, Paul will then proceed off the Ignatian Way, he maybe is trying to get off the radar a little bit, to Berea, and then Acts has him uh, journeying down to Athens and eventually to Corinth. Um, but Thessalonica uh, is a crucial city, not only because of the east-west route, but there's also in the ancient world a northern route that takes you up to the Danube River. So it becomes very quickly um, the major city of Macedonia. And by the first century, um, the geographer Strabo, who, who does a study of Greek cities, um, it's sort of a tour guide to the Greek world, calls it the mother city of all Macedonia, the metropolis. And that's how the Thessalonians saw themselves this way as well. Um, the mother city of Macedonia, the most important town in the region, uh, the place where the Roman proconsul will have his seat. So um, this is a peaceful province. There aren't Roman legions running around here. They don't need them. Um, but the, the seat of Roman government is here. It's the largest city in Macedonia in Paul's time, uh, which means within the walls, somewhere between 65 and 80,000 people. Uh, the population density is pretty unimaginable um, in these ancient cities. The, the actual area of the city is not so great, and there are large public spaces, so people are crammed together in uh, apartment blocks, islands, uh, tenements. Um, including the area right outside the walls, there may have been 100,000 people in this region. By comparison, the Roman colony of Philippi um, has perhaps room in the walls for 10,000 people. So this is a much larger city than uh, Paul has been in previously. Um, someday I would like to come back and teach Philippians, which honestly is my favorite Pauline letter along with Philemon. Um, but one of the things notable about Philippi is that it's a Roman colony. And um, the modern city of Kavala is far enough away that there's been extensive excavations in Philippi. Um, and you can see a lot of the, the forum and the public buildings, the theater. Um, one of the notable facts about Philippi is that most of the inscriptions in the city for the first couple centuries are in Latin. Even though Greek is the common language here in Roman Government uses Greek as well. Um, Philippi prides itself on being a colony of Rome. Citizens of Philippi have the same rights as citizens of Rome, and there's a very um, Latin character to the public display, to public self-presentation of Philippi. By contrast, Thessalonica remains a very Greek city. Greek language dominates. Its own city government is on a Greek model. It's a quote-unquote free city under the Romans. That is, um, there are a lot of, they have a, a good deal of self-government. Uh, they're organized with a number of civic officials called city rulers or politarchs. There's a city council. Uh, we're going to meet these characters in a minute when we go to the narrative of Paul's time in, Philippi, or in Thessalonica in Acts. Um, as a trading city, as a port city, it's a, it's a, a, a teeming multicultural uh, urban environment. Um, we don't have direct evidence in archaeology for a Jewish community until the second century, but um, 
There's no reason not to think that Jews were part of that mix um, as they are represented in um, cities throughout the Mediterranean world. Um, this is something that I don't think I realized until fairly recently, but um, population estimates of the Roman Empire put the Jewish population about 10 or 15% of the people in the Roman Empire as it uh, comes to embrace the entire Mediterranean world. So if the community is fairly large, they're going to have, um, like other large foreign communities, some of their own religious political organization. And Acts has Paul beginning his work at a synagogue, a synagogue that has its own governing structure and, um, and it's a, an ability um, to enforce discipline within the Jewish community um, as a smaller part of this larger political organization. As you might expect, there's also great religious diversity in Thessalonica. Um, Greco-Roman religion's genius is that it can incorporate into itself just about anything. Uh, it will tolerate anyone who is tolerant. Um, in fact, they really only run into trouble with the Jews who don't recognize any other god, uh, but who are an old enough and large enough community that um, there are specific accommodations written into law, often accommodations enforced by Rome, in fact, that allow the Jews to maintain their own ancestral traditions without undue interference. Um, but the earliest Christians are going to run into trouble uh, in claiming that their God is the only God, not just another in the pantheon, but, um, but the only one. Um, other religions didn't have that kind of trouble, and people weren't um, necessarily tied to veneration of just one God. You could hedge your bets by venerating many from uh, the sorts of family guardian spirits, uh, might be worshipped in uh, an altar in the home, to uh, gods at the crossroads one would appease or um, honor through small offerings, uh, to civic religion which, um, as strange as it might sound to us, was only open to citizens of the city. So Thessalonican citizens would participate in the official civic religion. Foreigners could watch, uh, but they couldn't participate in that. But there were plenty of other cults. We have, um, even though Thessaloniki remains uh, a, a major city in Greece, and therefore the ability to dig underneath and find archeological remains is pretty limited, um, there is inscriptional evidence and some archaeological evidence for the veneration of gods found throughout the Greek East, Heracles, uh, the Dioscari, the twins, Castor and Pollux, Apollo, Aphrodite. Uh, there's evidence for Egyptian religion, cults of Isis and Serapis and Osiris, um, some somewhat mysterious mystery religions uh, whose teachings were kept to a, a small group of the initiated. Uh, and there's also evidence, especially in the Greek East, for um, the adoption of Roman gods, and particularly the gods of the imperial household, uh, as features of the city's religion as well. So we'll have temples to the guardian spirits of the Roman emperors, and eventually, uh, as the lines are pretty easy to blur, um, temples to the Roman emperors themselves, at least to those who've died and have gone on. Um, so Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, widely regarded to have been elevated as Heracles was before 
to the pantheon of the gods. So the Roman emperor, the living Roman emperor, if not a god himself, is the son of gods. And um, the security of a city like Thessalonica um, is guaranteed not only by honoring the traditional gods, but by honoring the gods of their Roman overlords. So this is a peaceful, prosperous city on a major trading route. Um, the Pax Romana is working out well for many of them, and um, the peace of Rome is guaranteed by peace with the gods. Into this uh, environment comes Paul. Acts gives us very schematized missions of Paul, and um, scholars for several hundred years now have wrestled with the extent to which you can check Luke's narrative uh, based on Paul's letters and the evidence that they offer themselves. Um, and I'm not too worried about that. Um, occasionally, it's helpful to see that Luke has particular interests in the way he tells the story, and to interpret Luke and Acts well, it's important to to notice what Luke wants us to see. Um, but for our purposes, it's enough to, to say that even on the evidence of Paul's letters themselves, Paul is already a seasoned missionary when he arrives in Thessalonica. For perhaps 15 years, he has proclaimed the good news of what God has done for the world in Jesus Christ. He tells us in Galatians that he has preached the word in Damascus and in Arabia. He's gone to Syria and Cilicia, in southern Asia Minor. He's ended up in Antioch in Syria and been part of a much um, larger missionary team and church of Jews and Gentiles. According to Acts, he sets off under the aegis of the church in Antioch together with Barnabas and preaches in Cyprus and then throughout southern Asia Minor. And finally, he makes his way to Macedonia. 1 Thessalonians 2, 2, Paul reminds the Thessalonians that when he came to them, it was immediately on the heels of having been mistreated in a shameful and violent manner in Philippi. Acts fills out the narrative with a story of Paul and Silas being dragged before the magistrates by some slave owners who had uh, a good money-making scheme with a slave girl who was inhabited by a spirit that allowed her to tell fortunes. And um, Paul casts this demon out of the girl. She can no longer tell fortunes. Um, the business uh, prospects of these slave owners uh, having been ruined, they drag Paul and Silas into public. But if, um, if you flip over to Acts 16 with me, um, it's telling what they actually charge the apostles with before the magistrates. I'm in um, Acts 16, starting in verse 19. <clears throat> when the slave girl's owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace, that is the forum, before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are disturbing our city. They're throwing our city into a turmoil. They are Jews, and they are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. 
Notice the charge. We are a Roman colony. We have our own traditions. These foreigners, these Judeans, are throwing us into a turmoil by advocating customs that are not just untraditional, but they are in fact not lawful for us. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates, who have their own police force with them, these lictors who carry bundles of rods, um, beat them in public, strip them and beat them in public, and then throw them into prison for safekeeping overnight. Um, Paul and Silas are delivered by God, and um, they are then dismissed by the magistrates themselves who are embarrassed that, according to Acts, that they have beaten Romans uncondemned in public. We turn to Acts 17 then to find out what happens next. Paul and Silas make their way down the Ignatian Way. They pass through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he argued with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this is the Messiah, namely Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you. If you recall from the lectionary uh, readings, I guess it would be last, last year was Luke, or next year is Luke, I'm, I'm confused, sorry. The end of Luke's gospel has the risen Jesus appearing to two disciples on the road to Emmaus and then to all of the 11 together. And in both instances, he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. And his reading of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms is that the Messiah had to suffer and then enter into his glory. Paul is preaching the same message years later, proving from the scriptures that this is the destiny of the Messiah, and moreover, that this Jesus whom God raised from the dead is, in fact, that Messiah. And some of them, verse 4, were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas. Some of them, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, these are Greeks uh, in uh, Luke's terminology who are associated with the synagogue, but they are not Judeans. They haven't been circumcised. They aren't full proselytes. And not a few of the leading women of the city. So Paul's message has found somewhat of a tepid reception, apparently, in the synagogue itself among the Judeans, but it's found a pretty enthusiastic hearing among Gentiles who had already been attracted to worship of the God of Israel. And particularly, Luke likes to highlight that even some of the upper strata of society are attracted to Paul. Although here, as um, in some of the other places Paul ministers, it's particularly among women that Paul's message takes hold. First Thessalonians itself doesn't appear to... Um, well, let me put it another way. If we only had First Thessalonians, we wouldn't be certain there were Jews in the congregation. It's not a letter in which Paul appeals to Scripture, in which he quotes Scripture, the allusions that he has there uh, are such that we might be able to recognize them, but um, they, they, they work under the surface. It appears that the congregation that Paul is addressing is mainly Gentile, and that jibes with Luke's account as well. 
um, Gentiles who may know something of the God of Israel, but who have not been formed in the community of the synagogue. Luke attributes the motive of jealousy to the Judeans. Um, They decide to get Paul uh, not only out of their own midst, but out of the city. And so they find some of those ruffians who hang around the marketplace, and they form a mob and set the city in an uproar. While the mob was searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly, this assembly, either the crowd of the people, or it's the same word used for the town council, so this may also be a formal charge before the magistrates, uh, they couldn't find them, but they attacked Jason's house. Jason, we don't know anything else about him. It's a Greek name. Um, He appears to have been giving hospitality to Paul and Silas. Perhaps his house has become the center of a small worshiping community. When they couldn't find Paul and Silas, verse 6, they dragged Jason and some believers before the city authorities, shouting, again, listen to the charge. These people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying that there is another king named Jesus. So here, the charge is one of disruption of the city, but it's even more pointed that Jesus is a king, loyalty to whom rivals one's loyalty to Caesar. The people in the city officials, the magistrates, were disturbed when they heard this. But apparently, Jason is either high status enough or the charges are flimsy enough that they don't imprison them. Instead, they take money as security that the problems will go away. And they take money from Jason and the others and they let them go. So that very night, verse 10, the believers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. (laughs) They got out of town in a hurry. Paul offers... uh, a brief reflection on the turmoil that surrounded his stay in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2, 2. Remembering the shameful treatment he endured in Philippi, he said, we had courage to speak the word to you also in Thessalonica in spite of great opposition. Opposition apparently in the synagogue, opposition that erupted into uh, the city square. It's not clear how long Paul was in Thessalonica. Luke tells us that he engaged in the synagogue over three Sabbaths. Then there's some unspecified time that he spends in Jason's house. Um, Paul will refer to himself working with his own hands night and day to support himself. He'll mention a time when some of the believers from Philippi came with a monetary gift that allowed him to devote full time to preaching. So some weeks have passed at least, but Paul speaks about his struggle in Thessalonica during his preaching, and he talks later in chapter 2 of of being orphaned from them. He's had to leave in a hurry. So again, the details that uh, we lack without Luke's narrative are still present in Paul's letter. A fairly brief stay, a quick exit, a difficult time among them. 
Some months then elapse. Paul talks about going to Athens and being concerned for the Thessalonians' welfare, eventually sending his partner Timothy to check on them. Paul apparently then moves down to Corinth, where he is finally rejoined by Timothy, who reports that all is well. And it's in light of that report that Paul pens this letter that we have and sends it back to Thessalonica to encourage, to celebrate, and to further his work of forming this community. So 1 Thessalonians is, um, on most accounts, the earliest Pauline letter from perhaps around 49 CE. It would then be our earliest Christian writing that has survived. It's not likely, in my view, that it's Paul's first letter. He's written many letters, apparently, not all of which have survived. We, we hear about things in 1 Corinthians like, in my previous letter I wrote. Um, but this is a precious letter in that it gives us a very early glimpse into Paul's work in Europe. Again, Paul himself, a seasoned missionary, probably not new to letter writing, certainly not just newly discovering the implications of the gospel in the Gentile world, and yet engaging in, uh, in the birth and nurturing of a very young community. Almost done with the introductory stuff here, if you'll hold up with me. We're actually going to dive our way into then the first part of the letter. Um, one of, to my mind, one of the most illuminating commentaries on 1 Thessalonians is the Anchor Bible Commentary written by Abraham Malherby, published in 2000, but it's built on about three decades of this uh, former Yale professor's work with Paul and popular philosophy and pastoral care in the ancient world. And um, a lot of what I say, especially if it seems quite insightful, is probably plagiarized from Mal Harvey. So uh, let me just give him a shout out right now. Um, it's, uh, it's not the, uh, well, you guys probably know, the Anchor Bible is not necessarily uh, an easy commentary to read if you're looking for a quick help with a sermon. Um, but what it, what it does provide uh, is, is some real depth of analysis, and especially in trying to fill out the cultural context. And Malherby is not followed by everyone. No, no New Testament scholar commands uh, universal assent, um, at least not normally. Um, but Malherby's work is particularly valuable because he's, a, he's sensitive to the way in which Paul's forming of this community participates in a much larger discourse that's diffused throughout the Greco-Roman world, not just in literature, but in, in street preaching. And this is what he calls popular philosophy. Uh, my friend and colleague uh, at Princeton Seminary, George Parsenius, uh, likens these folks to the Dr. Phil's or the Oprah's of the ancient world. Um, people in the marketplace, people sometimes going apparently house to house, offering advice on how to live well pointing to themselves as models of how to live well. Um, the, the fancy Greek word for this uh, kind of exhortation is paranesis, and um, I'll try not to use that very much, but it's, it's a convenient term as an umbrella for a whole family of things. But there's a kind of discourse that, uh, that develops. So we have something like uh, the advice column, dear, dear Abby or Ann Landers, uh, there's lots of variations of that, but you kind of know the genre. 
someone writes in with a question and then the advice columnist will offer sympathy, will uh, sometimes use sharp uh, words to kind of jar the person into seeing it another way, sometimes will be very comforting and nurturing, kind of can depend, and that's why it's entertaining to read when you do uh, read such things, not only to see how messed up everybody else is, but also maybe to, to get some hints for making our own lives better. Um, and so there are some characteristics that uh, would, are evident to us in literary evidence, in literary remains, but would have been experienced by most people just by listening to talk on the street. Some of the letters which were um, meant to be published by their authors, the letters of Cicero and Seneca in Latin, uh, Pliny, um, some of the letters of Plutarch in Greek, um, are letters that are letters of exhortation, that include characteristics that um, even later make their way into handbooks. There are, there are some ancient handbooks for orators. There are other handbooks for letter writers that teach you how to write a friendly letter, how to write uh, uh, an appeal to a government official. Um, there's even a paranetic letter that is modeled. So some of the features that will show up in First Thessalonians as well um, are the use of personal example. In ancient philosophy, it, philosophy is a, a way of life, as, a, as an important book on ancient philosophy calls it. Philosophy is a way of life, as um, spiritual discipline. It's um, therefore best learned through another life. So the use of personal examples and a call to imitate. Along with that, um, this, this mode of discourse often uses not this but that form of argumentation, showing negative behavior and showing the positive alternative. And um, similarly, there's a lot of attention to what we might call virtue, which is, is character qualities in action. What is it about a person's value system, a person's commitments that are evident in their actions? How do their actions speak to um, a level of spiritual and personal development. And this literature often trades on the very close personal relationship between the uh, one giving the exhortation and those receiving. In some cases, that's a relationship that only exists in the discourse. Um, I'm a trustworthy philosopher. I have your good in mind. Listen to me. Um, but sometimes it's in the context of family. It's Proverbs, the advice of one's father or mother to a child. One thing that is, uh, I think, especially illuminating by Mel Herbie's work is not only the way in which Paul's discourse is recognizable, it belongs to this genre, but ways in which it is really different, starkly different from what's on offer in popular philosophy. So we'll be looking at that more in the second session today. But uh, a couple of quotes from Seneca, one of these moral philosophers, um, will at least help highlight a couple of the features I've just mentioned. Uh, first of all is the fact that for, for ancient philosophers, actions speak louder than words. So Seneca says, we should choose from among the living, not men who pour forth their words with the greatest glibness, turning out commonplaces, but men who teach us by their lives. Seneca's writing men, but I will say that there are some really interesting works on women as moral examples. Uh, Plutarch, the 
Greek philosopher, priest of Delphi, collector of traditions, has a couple books, famous sayings of Spartan women, of Roman women. Um, but by and large, it's men who are the examples. Men who teach us by their lives, men who teach us what we ought to do and then prove it by their practice, who show us what we should avoid and then are never caught doing that which they have ordered us to avoid. Actions that correspond to the words, character that embodies the message. Seneca shares the opinion of um, pretty much everybody in the ancient world that a written text is secondary to the living personal example. But a letter can substitute for personal presence, and that's certainly what it's doing here. Paul is unable to be there in person, but his letter can present himself to them, put himself in their midst, as it were. But Seneca says it's the living voice and the intimacy of a common life that will help you more than the written word. We need to go to the scene of the action, first because people put more faith in their eyes than in their ears, and second because the way is long if one follows advice, but short and helpful if one follows examples. A living voice, the intimacy of life together, example, not simply precept. Again, Paul and um, the earliest Christian missionaries to the Greco-Roman world are following this pattern. It's certainly not exclusively a Greco-Roman pattern. One can go back to the Gospels and see Jesus' intentionality in gathering a group, 12 to represent the regathering of Israel, but a much wider group of men and women, according to Luke's gospel, who will be with him, who will learn by their common life together. But this is key to Paul's strategy as a missionary and a pastor, living example, common life. The situation the Thessalonians find themselves in is that prematurely they have been separated from their teacher and example. He's now able to be present only through emissaries like Timothy and through a letter sent back with some unknown emissary this time, a letter that can be read and reread and that will make his presence visible to them, audible to them. Um, what in particular is Paul addressing in this letter? And um, here we're reading in between the lines of the letter and thinking more broadly about what would it be like for these Gentiles to become loyal adherents of the God who raised Jesus from the dead. What would that cost them in terms of cognitive and behavioral reorientation? How would that reorient their social lives? How would that mix up their world? How would it turn their world upside down? What about this message and its consequences could plausibly be presented to city magistrates as throwing the whole city or perhaps the whole inhabited world into turmoil? We get some help by looking at what uh, ancient authors tell us about what we would call conversion or turning from one's ancestral gods to another set of loyalties. Um, I've given you a handout. It should have been in your packet. It has an outline of 1 Thessalonians on one side. It's got a few texts on the other. 
Um, I'm going to read from this if you'd like to read along, or you can pull the handout out, or you can just listen along. The Roman historian Tacitus, uh, no lover of Christians, is also extremely dismissive of the Judeans or the Jews, not least because some of his Roman countrymen are attracted to their ways. And Tacitus, writing some period after Paul, late, late first century CE, speaks about those who adopt the Jews' ways, the Judeans' ways. Um, I'm alternating between Jew and Judean, partly to emphasize that to be a Judean was to observe traditions that were rooted in a geographic location, in the history of a particular people. And even as these people spread and moved throughout the Mediterranean, whether by exile or, as, as many of them put it in the first century, as colonies of the mother city, Jerusalem, they were still identifiably rooted in those ancestral traditions and those particularities. So Judean reminds us that this is a very particular people group. Uh, Jew is helpful in showing that that identity is now translocal. It's gone far beyond that geographical location, origin. Um, but to be a Judean is mutually exclusive to being a Macedonian or a Roman or an Illyrian. And so Tacitus understands conversion to mean, especially now he's talking about those who circumcise themselves, which to a Roman is, is a kind of mutilation. It's just about unimaginable as a practice. He says, the earliest lesson these people learn is to despise the gods, to disown their country, to regard their parents, children, and brothers as of little account. This is not a personal choice. This is a transfer of loyalties that represents loyalty now to the God of the Judeans, to their people, to the new community. And for Tacitus, at least, it represents despising one's own gods, throwing dishonor on one's family, disowning one's own country. We get a reflection of this in Philo, uh, a prominent member of a prominent Jewish family in Alexandria, which has, uh, has had by Philo's time in the first century a very large, vigorous, vibrant Jewish community for, um, for a century or more. He talks about, from the other point of view, what is necessary for the Jewish community in welcoming those who turn to their God. He says, these foreigners who have forsaken the national customs or the customs of their fathers in which they were raised, customs full of falsehoods and vanity, of course, they have left their pride and become genuine lovers of truth. They have emigrated, as it were, to piety, to godliness. Um, this language is full of ironies because the Romans, for example, thought themselves the most pious of all peoples. They were successful because they honored the gods above all peoples. From Philo's point of view as a Jew, of course, they've left falsehood, vanity, and impiety behind and have become immigrants to piety. They are suppliants and servants of the truly existent one. And so it is fitting that they gain a share in God's providential care. In the help they receive from God, they find the reward of their fleeing to God. 
So notice the imagery. These are refugees who fled to God for refuge. They're suppliants at the altar. They are immigrants and now servants of the truly existent God. He says in another place, those who have left their homeland and friends and relatives for the sake of virtue and holiness should not be left without a share in other cities and families and friends. He's not simply talking about people who've moved geographically. In transferring their loyalty to the God of Israel, they have left their home. They have left their city. And so they need another city, another family, other friends. And so, he says, places of refuge should always be ready for those who cross over to piety. He's here interpreting in the Pentateuch Moses setting up cities of refuge for those who are guilty of manslaughter. But in his reinterpretation, the Jewish community itself should be a place of refuge to welcome the refugees, the suppliants, those who have left false gods for the true one. Um, There's a a, a beautiful story that um, fills in a gap in the Genesis narrative. We're told that Joseph, upon being elevated to second in command in Egypt, is given a wife, the wife of an Egyptian priest. You can imagine in the second temple period, this causes a little bit of anxiety. How could one of our patriarchs be married to the daughter of a pagan let alone Egyptian, priest. And so this work known to us as Joseph and Aseneth uh, tells the story of this woman, Aseneth, whom God has chosen for Joseph and her conversion to worship of the one true God. She has a beautiful prayer that takes up several chapters of the work as she um, laments her idolatry and unworthiness but accepts, embraces the gracious welcome of Israel's God She says, I have no other hope but in thee, Lord, for thou art the father of orphans, the protector of the persecuted, the helper of the distressed. Look upon my orphan state, Lord, for I have fled to thee. Asana's parents are downstairs, but she's an orphan because she has left her gods. She now is without family, except that she finds God to be a father. And she finds in the new community a family to replace that old one. Some of what the Thessalonians are dealing with, and Paul uses words like suffering and persecution, is very likely the kind of social pressure that is attendant on making such a tremendous break with one's past. Pressure from family, pressure from neighbors, pressure that may have used Every type of coercion known to human beings from uh, emotional manipulation to mocking to, sh- to, to insults, perhaps to physical violence. From the standpoint of those left behind by those who turned to the God of Israel, these people make no sense. They've left their gods, but they haven't become Judeans. Apparently, they have no gods. It's remarkable how for the first few centuries we get evidence that Gentiles, pagans, looked at Christians as atheists. They didn't have a God. So they don't actually belong in the ancient world. There are no atheists. But there's this people that no longer are Thessalonians, but they're not Judeans. We don't know where to put them. Eventually the word Christian will uh, arise, probably in a couple decades after um, Paul is writing. Um, but they, these people don't fit. 
And they're a danger to social cohesion, to peace and prosperity. To the extent that they have dishonored the gods, they are a danger to civic order. To the extent that they dishonor family, they're terrible examples for us and for our children. And to the extent that they are spreading their message enthusiastically, they're like a cancer that is spreading, that is in danger of turning everything upside down. It's to this community that Paul pens this letter, and in the subsequent six sessions, we will walk slowly through the letter, section by section, and um, explore what Paul has to say into that situation, how he deals with the distress that they're experiencing, how he deals with the distress that he is experiencing as their pastor, unable to be present with them. I'd invite you, as you have time this weekend, weekend, it's the week, isn't it? Um, as you have time this week, First Thessalonians is a short letter. I'd invite you to read it through multiple times. Um, our next session, we'll look at the first 10 verses. Uh, I, by my watch, I've left us about five minutes for questions, and I think if you uh, have something you want to say or question to ask, if you can project, we're probably good. Just um, I'll try to repeat the question for the recording. Is that good? Okay. Please. Yeah. But um, do you understand, uh, do you believe that um, there's a corpus of information that may be written down now during the oral tradition, from the oral tradition, that would be um, authentic fragments and pieces of both the gospel record and also of other letters so that there's a huge corpus of information that later we Yeah, that's a great question. So um, the date of 49 for this letter is, it's fairly conventional. Um, my colleague Douglas Campbell at Duke would put it much earlier, actually. Um, but 49, that puts it at us at some distance then from the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection, the, the Pentecost events. And so the question was, what, what should we imagine is connecting this? Um, and I think the fact that we don't have... Uh, I would say an, an extant written source from that early, um, doesn't mean that there wouldn't have been writing as well as um, oral tradition. So, um, and this, I think it's been a largely, um, the fruits of the labor have been fairly minimal over a couple centuries, but what motivated the early form critics, for example, was the, was the, the desire to find in our written text evidence of a worshiping, teaching, evangelizing community, trying to identify um, types of discourse that might have had their original setting in a gathering of worship. And the difficulty is just untangling that from the literary sources that we have now. Um, but I think there's every um, evidence that stories are circulating very early on, um, immediately following the, the birth of the church and that um, there are multiple channels of these traditions. Um, certainly, I think, based on practice of, of other ancient groups, we can see um, things would have been written down. Um, we just don't have those sources. But Paul, Paul's own originality can be overblown, 
in the sense that we don't have a lot of what he certainly will have learned and perhaps traditions he contributed to, for example, during all of his time in Antioch. So there are a couple of, if you're really interested in this, there are a couple of good books I can offer you um, that try to explore Paul's early years or Paul's silent years and that do so, I think, very judiciously. Um, but um, we'll see a little bit later on in 1 Thessalonians. There are a couple things Paul has to say about the return of Jesus that sound really close to traditions we have in Matthew's gospel. And I, th- I think we, even if we can't untangle the web, there's a very dense web very early on. Jim? Um, uh, hearing you say that the first Christians were seen as kind of a cancer by some in the society, I'm seeing this narrative going now, and it's probably a statement and a question, that Christians today are, because of our uh, bad behavior, <laughs> okay. I, I don't know what you see because I think they were despised yeah. in the first century the way they're despised today, you know? Yeah. Um, what Jim is touching on, of course, are the, the big narratives, the big stories we tell to try to make sense of what's happening. And I, I don't feel very qualified to speak um, about the current church in a way that, say, a sociologist would want to. Um, to, to have a sort of data-heavy um, discussion. I mean, you can, you can learn interesting things by looking at the Pew Charitable Trust surveys on religion that come out every few years and see many of the growing churches are the ones that would also be labeled as closed in and bigoted. And, and um, why are we declining, whoever we is? Um, but I'll speak as a United Methodist, or you know, many of us come here from the, the Presbyterian traditions. Um, the mainline churches are on the decline. I think it's probably a very complex set of factors. But I, I do agree. The point Jim was making is that there's, there's really never been a period where the Christian gospel was not offensive, deeply offensive. Um, locating where that offense is, and perhaps where it ought to be, I think Paul has some concern, actually, that the Thessalonians themselves might be causing undue offense, um, that's, that's both a, that's an analysis that requires theological judgment as well as statistics. Um, I, I do think what often gets lost, though, um, in modern-day discussions, when we use these big terms like tolerant or inclusive or bigoted or exclusive, a lot of stuff gets lost in that that is... is actually obscures what's going on in the early church. So um, there's a New York Times columnist whose who's writings on Christianity I, I really have admired because as someone who doesn't necessarily identify him as a, himself as a Christian, Nicholas Kristof is 
uh, is remarkably sympathetic, I think, to evangelicals, and partly because he sees them in Africa and Asia, in the slums and places where lots of people don't go. Um, he sees their lives, and so he's curious. Uh, he had a, an interview with Tim Keller that he published. He had one with Jimmy Carter just a couple weeks ago. Um, but Christoph, in his interview with Jimmy Carter, has just a, a throwaway line. Um, you know, Jesus was all about inclusion. And um, yes and no. It, Paul, Paul's converts are embraced as Gentiles. They're not required to go through uh, a surgical operation if they're men. They're not required to become Judeans in order to become followers of Christ. But what are they required to do? They have to give up their gods. I mean, as Tacitus, as Philo, both attest, there's a tremendous cost because worship of the one true God is not compatible with worship of Isis or Apollo. Because, as we'll see in chapter 4 in this letter, certain practices that are culturally acceptable are no longer acceptable for God's people. So there is both a, a tremendous inclusion, breaking down of barriers, and there is at the same time um, a tremendous call to turn away as well as turn toward. And I, th I think that that gets, um, I think it does, it gets lost in simply talking about exclusion or inclusion. I think about this book of Miroslav Volf's from some years ago, Exclusion and Embrace, that I think wrestles in a much more nuanced way with the fact that every embrace is also an exclusion. I think we are um, past the time, and it's coffee hour, but I hope this will just be the beginning of conversation. And uh, I look forward to talking to you at the breaks and the meals. Um, I'll run away to my room if I actually need to study. Otherwise, like, talk to me, bug me. Thank you. Thank you, Ross. It's a good beginning. Uh, 